0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. State Health Director Bruce Anderson came under fire earlier this week. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green believes DOH has failed to hire enough contact tracers as the number of COVID-19 cases has risen to daily triple digits. Here's what Anderson had to say this morning.
1: We're continuing to see cases of COVID uh, in the triple digits, and I expect we're going to see even higher cases today based on preliminary reports. And uh, unfortunately, given the rate of rise in cases and and the lack of enforcement or controls, I'm, I'm expecting those numbers will increase, at least until we find uh, community-wide adherence to the safe practices we're recommending. That is uh, the social distancing and, and wearing masks and not going to work when you're sick. Those are, the, those are the ways we prevent the spread of this disease, and people are letting down their guard. We're, we're seeing large gatherings, um, people with the beach, ignoring all those practices. And, and as, a, as a result, we're going to probably see increased cases, which is very concerning. As these numbers rise, our ability to um, manage the cases becomes less and less. In the area of contact tracing, for example, we, we've we done a terrific job here investigating each and every case, identifying contacts, and following up on those. And I believe, and of course, we're committed to continuing to, to do our best in that area. But as the case numbers go up, the contact tracing becomes less effective and and there are more and more people who are transmitting disease without, without even knowing uh, about it. And obviously, if we don't know about the case, we can't do the contact tracing. And we're, we're getting close to that point. Nevertheless, we have a dedicated staff, over 100 people here, who are doing that full-time. We have now uh, National Guardsmen helping with not only the contact tracing, but also in evaluating data. And we just brought on 20 new uh, contact tracers who are going through orientation to facilitate their onboarding.
0: Help me get my arms around this, though, because I know Lieutenant Governor Josh Green has taken you and Dr. Park to task, saying we need to ramp this up. There are certain guidelines based on our population that we should have already a cadre of contact tracers ready and waiting.
1: We are ramping up uh, rapidly. We have on the bench over 400 people who have been trained in contact tracing, and we can bring them on immediately, at least within days, as needed. Uh, We have a contract with RCUH that allows us to uh, act quickly and bringing on new staff. But as we bring on new staff, they they need some additional training, of course, and and need to get oriented, and um, they need supervision and, obviously, space. So we are looking at expanding our office space to, to accommodate them going forward. Today, we have enough Uh, Contract tracers to keep up with the cases. I am concerned going forward, of course, that we may not be able to do so. And having said that, contract tracing is certainly not a panacea to the problem. It it is helpful as we do investigations, but the real solution to keeping this disease under control is to stop its spread, to prevent its spread, and the only way that's going to happen is that people adhere to the, uh, the safe practices. That we have in place.
0: The other thing that's happening, though, is that the delay in getting the test results.
1: Yeah, well, we're, we're using uh, the gold standard PCR test, which is used across the world, and, uh, certainly throughout the country here. It's the most sensitive test. And we can get a 24-hour turnaround time with that test. There is no rapid test available that's, that's reliable. Uh, there's an Avid ID Now test, which is popular, and it, it can get a result in 15, 20 minutes on a one-off basis. You can do one sample at a time, but uh, it is not as sensitive as, as the PCR test. In fact, there's a large number of false positives, so it's not a good screening tool. It's not a good tool for, for screening people who may be infected who are not symptomatic. It's intended as a point-of-care test, so if you're in the hospital and they want to know if you have COVID, you can get a quick result that May or may not be accurate, but it's certainly helpful in making diagnoses. Well, in the mainland, there's so many cases occurring that it's not unusual to see a five or even ten-day turnaround time on tests. And if, if if you were waiting ten days for a result, it's useless to, to for the purpose of contact tracing. By then, the person is either um, you know in the hospital or they're they're through the um, the illness. So, getting tests quickly is 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 critical to our are being able to follow up with the contact tracing, and by the way, for treatment and other reasons as well. We're lucky in Hawaii to have enough capacity here to be able to keep up with uh, most of the testing. The problem we ran into recently was um, the lack of reagents. There's so much disease occurring in California, Texas and Florida, and a few other states that all the testing supplies and equipment are being diverted to those places where they're desperately needed. And Hawaii, um, for better or worse, has had fewer cases, so were not a priority when they start distributing these uh, reagents and things across the country. So we did have a situation at one point where one of the labs here could not get the reagents and they had to then send the samples to the mainland to have them uh, processed. And that of course took over four days and, and we, were, we were seeing long delays in getting results. We did step in and we did our, we did the testing for that company at our state lab and we were able to get the 24 hour turnaround with those samples. It's a fact that across the country there there are limits in the number of tests that can be done, swabs that are available, reagents, and so forth. And um, we've, we've had to be somewhat judicious in, in making decisions on who, who gets tested, and, and certainly the broad screening that is being done in um, some places is not possible in, in many situations here. But nevertheless, we, we've been able to keep up, and we haven't had a major problem with the testing. I worry about how things are going to go going forward, because we're we're seeing... Surges of cases all over the country, and uh, and often much worse than even we're seeing here. So that's that's going to be uh, an ongoing concern.
0: Can we switch gears for a second? Because I know there have been a number of calls for triggers. I think Honolulu's mayor has said, you know, we've been asking, well, what can you tell us? Because we want to relax this or we want to tighten up on this, and we need triggers. Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, we have existing uh, triggers or in place as we as we've gone forward we've been focused a lot on hospital capacity so there is good data on what it's safe in terms of a reserved uh, capacity for acute care beds ICU beds um, ventilators and so forth so th- those things we're tracking very carefully and by the way we are very concerned about w- what's happening with these surgeon cases the uh, acute care beds are filling up and and the ICU beds the intensive care, beds are are also filling up so this is something we're, we're monitoring very closely we are concerned that if these high numbers continue we're going to run out of simply run out of beds we have a limited number here in hawaii we're essentially like a small city on the mainland and we don't have the advantage of being able to transfer patients to other hospitals like they do on the mainland often so uh, that's a critical metric but but there is a uh, threshold for that that, that informs decision-making, and we're getting very close to that at this point as the hospitals are seeing increases in uh, admissions for COVID. About one out of 10 cases, 10% of the cases we see ending up in the hospital at at some point. So um, if we have 100 cases, we can expect 10 of those individuals to to be in the hospital, which is a significant amount. And by the way, the fatality rate's about 1%, so one of those people is probably going to die from the disease despite the best of care. So um, filling up the hospitals is a major concern. We do have metrics for that. What we don't have metrics for, um, and we are developing are for some of the other public health measures. For example, the percentage of people infected by the disease is important. At one point we were getting rates of one or 2% would be positive. Now we're seeing rates of 5% and more. And in fact, it's been higher over the last few days and this is, this is also concerning. That means basically more people are infected uh, than we've seen before. It's somewhat of a crude rate because it depends on how many people you're testing as to what the percent infected would be. Nevertheless, we're seeing increases there. But we're also looking at turnaround time for, for laboratory reports, as we discussed earlier. Uh, we want to see those uh, lab results within 24 hours, and we're tracking a metric that would um, look at, at that issue. As well as how long it takes us to do contact tracing, our goal is to be able to reach all the um, the, the individuals who um, have been identified as cases within uh, 24 hours, and and also all the close contacts. And we've been good about keeping up with that, and maintaining that. But as we have more cases, it's going to be more difficult. But one one way we can measure the effectiveness of this, our contact tracing is to measure how long it takes us to identify all the close contacts of, of the case.
0: What is hindering you? getting that information out in a good dashboard?
1: Nothing right now. We, we actually are collecting that information, and we've been using it, but um, it's not it has been made uh, public, so we're now uh, going to be posting it up on our dashboard. In fact, you, we can expect an announcement in the next day or so that would be um, uh, letting people know that we are going to be now publishing those, those metrics. It may take a little while before we can get them up, but uh, we'll have them there. Another metric that we're tracking, for example, is the number of people who are currently in the hospital. And and I think that would be of interest to to the public. It it varies, of course, and we're, you know, it's been 40 or 50 at any given time, but now we're seeing much higher numbers.
0: You recently had to uh, use your powers to force someone into quarantine.
1: We fortunately have very few situations where where, uh, we've had to force someone into quarantine or isolation. The health director does have the uh, authority to force someone into uh, isolation if they are imminent or substantial risk to the public, and we did have a case recently where a young man was um, um, identified as positive and simply refused to uh, quarantine himself, and and was effectively arrested and sent to quarantine, and we did sign an order supporting that that action. It, it's a rare occurrence, but it's an important tool to have in place. Normally, we find very good compliance, and, and uh, I must say I'm, I'm I'm very pleased that people have not have been. Honoring their, their commitments to stay, stay indoors and, and away from other people. But uh, it's important to have those authorities if and when you need them.
0: What about in the case of, say, government workers, you know, who might refuse to take a test or refuse to be quarantined, even though some of their co-workers have tested positive?
1: Well, first of all, it's important to understand that we can't force anyone to get tested. That's, that's a civil rights issue that um, has been standing for a long time. However, we can force them into quarantine if they won't comply. Unfortunately that did happen recently with one individual an adult young young male who simply refused to uh, quarantine themselves they were out and about and hanging out with their friends and and uh, and decided they just simply didn't want to do it we did sign a I did sign an order that uh, forced the individual into quarantine he was arrested and, and that situation has been resolved
0: okay but to your knowledge has there been any issues with any unions at this point
1: no we haven't had any Significant issues I know of with the unions, I think everyone recognizes that if an individual is positive, uh, they need to be quarantined for the sake of the the community. And uh, and as far as I know, there's been no union grievances along those lines that may change. It's hard to know what positions uh, might be taken along uh, as it relates to uh, a forced quarantine. We're we're seeing a wide variety of um, exposures that we haven't seen before, essentially people gathering for different purposes. In fact, the vast majority of cases we have are people who are gathering for a lot of different activities, including beach parties, birthday parties. Uh, we had lots of gatherings during Father's Day and Fourth of July, and in fact that probably uh, started uh, what, what the snowball we're seeing now and people um, more and more um, becoming infected. But religious functions, um, home religious services, coworkers getting together without um, social distancing, Funeral events have accounted for over 70 of our cases. Uh, these are multiple gatherings, uh, visitations and so forth without adhering to safe practices. And of course, meeting for drinks, uh, socializing at bars and so forth is often a uh, uh, source of infection. And recently, uh, retirement celebrations have come up as a, as a concern. Um, I suspect you know, a lot of people are retiring now. It's, not a, it's often not a good time to be at work. So um, uh, these are all all um, uh, situations where people have let down their guard and, and, uh, and have resulted in uh, infections occurring. It's critically important that people um, maintain their social distancing and, and wear masks uh, and certainly do not go to work if you're sick. Um, most of the outbreaks and clusters that we have have been associated with someone who's gone to work sick and exposed many others during that process. That's a hard thing for everyone to appreciate, but that's what's going to, adhering to those practices is going to, is what's going to keep this disease from spreading.
0: That was State Health Director Bruce Anderson responding to criticism about our contact tracing capacity and the rising positive COVID cases across the state. Anderson says if there was one thing he could change, looking back over the last few months, he says he wishes there was better enforcement on the COVID restrictions. is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. <laughs> Kauai's only navigable river, the Wailua River, is found on Kauai. However, no natural deep water harbors existed along the island's coastline until a portion of Nawiliwili Bay near Lehui was dredged and protected by a breakwater to form Nawiliwili Harbor. Ninini Point, which marks the northern entrance to uh, Nawiliwili Bay, was leased by the Hawaiian government from the Lehui Plantation Company in 1897, as a site for a lighthouse, which the government eventually purchased in 1917. Over the years, uh, Nanini Point has seen uh, many different lights. The original was an oil lamp and reflector. Then in 1923, it was replaced with a lens lantern atop a 33 and a half foot tall mast. Then in 1932, uh, $48,000 was used to install a high powered long range lighthouse, resulting in an 86 foot concrete tower Complete with a three bedroom keeper's dwelling. Now that you have your history lesson, can you tell us how much the Hawaiian government paid the Lehui Plantation Company to purchase Ninini Point in 1917? Call 941 3689 or 877 941 3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. <music>
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: HPR's Ashley Mazuo has been digging deep into the issue of triggers. Ashley, good morning.
3: Good morning.
0: What's so important about
3: this? Well, you know, we still haven't really had any concrete information from Governor David Ige on what would trigger restrictions um, to help stop the virus and when things can ease up again. And this comes as the county officials close bars, cut the size of gatherings, and have rolled back on reopening in many other ways. Um, There's just not a path forward because there is no model available publicly right now. Models are meant to give policymakers and the public a glimpse at what could happen if certain decisions are made, for example, if school reopened or if travel was opened up. States across the country have developed their own statistical models that kind of illustrate resorting to certain restrictions that could stem the spread of COVID, but Hawaii hasn't had one yet um, that is publicly available, or if the government officials have it, we, as the regular public, haven't seen it. Um, There are also national models out there, but one of the most memorable of them being the one from the University of Washington back in April, but it doesn't really address Hawaii's unique conditions. I spoke with the University of Hawaii's health economist um, and chair of the Hawaii Pandemic Modeling Work Group, which is basically a group of local experts in public health, data and economics. She explained how Hawaii is different compared to other states.
0: Hawaii has different characteristics in terms of population an older population, a larger proportion that's Asian and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander. And most importantly, we're in the middle of the Pacific and we don't exactly have high volume of
3: interstate transportation, and we have stronger control of the interstate migration
4: piece compared to other states. Other models may or may not account for that.
3: And then Nick Redding from the Hawaii Data Collaborative, who's also part of that same working group, said a local model could allow for more flexibility here in Hawaii.
4: We can be much more adaptive and responsive to shifts that occur in terms of understanding the likely consequences of those shifts and and understanding what the near and intermediate term might look like. What we learned earlier is if we're beholden to generalized models, where they take one model and then they put each state's data into that model and report that, like the University of Washington model, it leaves us in kind of a precarious place in terms of being able to be more responsive to local questions.
3: So basically HIPAM, which is that working group, has been working on a Hawaii model that could help government and businesses and residents just get a better idea of when COVID may trigger restrictions, which are those trigger points that you really hear Governor Ige and the mayor's talking about pretty often. But you know, five months into this thing, why don't we have one yet? Basically, the people who are doing the modeling, or at least like the HiPAM group or like Nick Redding at um, the Data Collaborative, they just don't feel like they have the crucial information that they need to make a really accurate model, Um, even though this sounds like a tool really similar to what county officials and business community has been really calling for. Um, Fan says she can't get testing data broken down by lab, um, daily COVID hospital admissions, or any really concrete, specific information about contact tracing. Um, what she said, contact tracing is one of our only tools um, to prevent spread, and it's really hard to grasp the quality of contact tracing, like how long does it take between the time the person is tested and the notification received that they're positive, and then how long um, is it until they are noti- their close contacts are notified. Um, And how long does it take the Department of Health to then isolate? Um, We really even have any idea of how many DOH is really monitoring at any period of time. Um, Fan isn't the only one who says that there needs to be transparency too. UH epidemiologist Thomas Lee, who also served as the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency's lead COVID-19 modeler and forecaster, he also called for more transparency. He said it has been challenging to compile all the data sources for public use. But now, doesn't DOH have that dashboard? Right. So DH does have that data dashboard, um, but it's mostly just cumulative numbers like the total number of cases, tests, deaths, hospitalizations since the beginning of the pandemic until now, which Lee says isn't super useful for modeling. He thought it would be really useful to break down the daily taste counts into categories like race or socioeconomic levels and travel versus non-travel and then use that to look at trends. Um, Fan and Redding use the seven day averages as to not get thrown off by sudden spikes. Lee thought that doing something like that at a more individualized scale would maybe help the state make better decisions based on who's getting the virus and where and how it's spreading.
4: What I mean by individual level data is daily data, but also data broken up by more specific categories like race, ethnicity, travel versus not travel, returning residents. Once you have those categories, then you can break it down by how many of those particular categories were tested every day, what type of test, where they all contact trace within 24 to 48 hours, how many of those ended up in the ICU in terms of you know how many of a specific ethnicity or socioeconomic status and the reason why that's all important is because it helps just provide a better understanding of what we're really seeing in our state and I know DOH reports some of the information but it doesn't provide a lot of context it it doesn't really provide a lot of the hospitalization data which we don't really have I think lieutenant governor is one of the few sources that we do have in terms of publicly available information.
0: So how does Hawaii stack up when it comes to sharing all this data
3: publicly? Um, not great prevent epidemics is a team of global health experts, um, many of them coming from the CDC under the Obama administration. They rank the states on the information it makes available and they call them essential indicator availability. These are things like the number of people in isolation and the time it takes to get back tests or the number of health care workers infected. And Hawaii does pretty bad. Um, it had a score of 13 percent and only seven states actually ranked lower than us. But to be fair, most of the country is missing critical information. For example, Minnesota was a state with highest percentage and it only had 43 percent. Dr. Shapar, the director of Prevent Epidemics said that a huge problem there is the lack of federal guidance. So because the federal government didn't tell these states or counties um, that these are important indicators that everybody has to track, everyone just started tracking different data and different reports and reporting in different ways. And you know the chart that Prevent Epidemics came up with really reflects that there is no standardization between the states um, for data reporting. And that's a huge issue for Hawaii in particular when we need to know what's going on in other states to restart tourism again. But despite our low ranking, Shapar said that Hawaii might be in the best position of all the states to fill those information gaps.
4: Hawaii is set up to actually be kind of a model or a star when it comes to data reporting and just addressing some of these things around the detail around the cases and hospitalizations and then also the contact tracing because it's at a good point in the pandemic. And I think this is the time where you start to say, okay, we put out all this data. Now we have a low number of cases. Let's beef it up so that if it gets worse later, we already have these systems in place.
0: So what's stopping us from actually, you know, being a the leader for the country, a model for the country.
3: Right, Lee says, it might be because different departments and agencies in Hawaii just sit in information silos and just aren't really sharing what they know with each other, like maybe it's a communication issue.
4: I would say the information does exist. It's just the data systems or whoever's in charge are not speaking with each other, or there's a lack of a coordinating figure or authority to put this all together. My guess is there hasn't been a single voice that has said this type of data dashboard for public consumption is necessary. I think there are sources that are internal that capture some of this. But what we've seen is a lack of transparency and consistent public education message. And that starts with just being honest and presenting the facts and the numbers to the public, because if not, they're not not going to trust
3: what's going on. And, you know, that's one of Lee's biggest concerns was public trust. And he says that starts with the realization at the top that saying this information should be public because the public doesn't trust the government if it's telling the truth for things for masks that have been proven time and time again to help slow the spread of COVID-19 if everyone was wearing one. Uh, We even saw this during the House of Representatives COVID-19 meeting on Monday, uh, where we had people like Ray Vera, the president of Hawaii Pacific Health, and Carl Bonham at UH Economist, and even House Speaker Psyche asking the Department of Health for information and just not really getting a sufficient response. All these People are basically saying, just give us information we're asking for and we'll help you see what your options are and maybe lead us to having a better understanding of decisions being made by our health department, governor and
0: mayors um, when it comes to the spread of COVID-19. All right. OK, Ashley, thank you so much. Good story. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Ashley Mazuo. to read her story. Go to HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition, 30 Americans, featuring Camp Town Ladies by Kara Walker, a work made up of cut paper silhouettes. HonoluluMuseum.org.
4: I'm Bert Lomb. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about telehealth services that are specifically tailored for your pet. With concerns over limiting travel as much as possible, telehealth services for our furry friends might be a perfect way to stay safe. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
0: A federal probe and another FBI letter. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra on the line
5: today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Oh, so this development—it's a biggie. It uh, is, yeah. This is now the the fourth city official to have received a subject or target letter from the FBI. Yes, and it's the managing director. That's right, managing director Roy Amamia. Um, he his lawyer revealed last week that his. Um, he had received a subject letter from the feds and had also gone before a grand jury. Now what that grand jury is investigating, we can't say for sure. The proceedings are confidential, but um, there is some evidence that points to it has to do with uh, Louis K. Aloha's severance payment of a quarter of a million dollars. And I know you folks had a story uh, by
0: um, Nick Gruby uh, talking about uh, how the former police commissioner, um, Max Sword was called into one of those meetings.
5: That's right. Yeah. So that's sort of what makes people think that it has to do with that payment. Um, a couple of years ago, the police commission signed off on Louis K. Aloha's severance payment. Um, and so Max Sword, a member of the commission has now gone before the grand jury and now, um, the managing director has as well. So, um, we're thinking that, you know, the feds are ramping up. Um, we don't know what the result will be. But um, for now, Mr. Amami is going to continue managing the day-to-day operations of the city. Yeah, and the other
0: city officials that were, uh, I guess, I get the received letters uh, from the federal investigators. I mean, the other one was the, top, the city's top
5: uh, uh, lawyer. That's right. Corporation counsel Donna Leong has been on leave for, gosh, like a year and a half now. Um, She is now transitioning to unpaid leave and is using up her accrued vacation days, but uh, is still not working. Um, Also elected prosecuting attorney Keith Kaneshiro has been on leave after receiving a target letter. Um, as Ms. Leong did, and then also the first deputy prosecutor um, received his own subject letter and hasn't worked since December 2018. I know, it's Um, amazing how time
0: (laughs) has flown, it's already 2020.
5: Yes. Um, And then in addition to that, another cabinet member in the Caldwell administration is on leave. Guy Koolukukui, the enterprise services director, um, is on leave after allegations came out in a civil lawsuit complaint having to do with his conduct when he was a teacher in the 80s at Kamehameha Schools. So he's on leave. Um, And I asked the mayor about this yesterday, why, you know, are some people on leave and the managing director will continue to work. And the mayor basically said that Amamiya is essential. He's a critical component. To the day-to-day operations of the city, um, and especially now with the COVID pandemic, um, you know, it, he said it makes sense to keep him on. That that uh, we need him now more than ever. And we, you know, we
0: should note that Caldwell used to be the managing director under Mayor uh, Mufi
5: Hanneman, so he knows he knows the work that's involved as a as an MD. Right, right, and he's saying this. Um, you know, Mr. Amami is just too important to. To put on the sidelines right now. Um, I also asked the mayor about, you know, what is what is his message to people that have lost some confidence in his administration because of the federal probe into his cabinet members, and he really didn't answer that. He just said um, there is an assumption in there, and I'm not going to speculate.
0: Okay, so you know, we basically have the managing director still on the job, even though. Uh, He's got this letter from the FBI, and I guess we'll just have to see how this plays out. Who else gets called uh, before the grand jury?
5: Right, right. And I think it is um, important to understand the difference between subject and target letter. Um, Roy Mia has received a subject letter, meaning his conduct is under investigation. It's part of the grand jury's probe. A target letter, which is what Donna Leong and Keith Conashiro received, means that the feds have uh, substantial evidence linking their conduct to a crime. Uh, but still, none of these people have been charged or indicted with a crime. Um not yet anyway, so okay, well, we're the all grand following jury, it. Yeah, the grand jury will have a say in that,
0: uh, and so we'll see what happens in the months to come. But thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. If your ballot isn't in the mail, you may want to consider dropping it off at one of the many election centers across the state. We were out there this weekend to hear from voters who opted to show up in person to mark up their ballots or to just get their signed envelope in the hands of election officials, skipping the Postal Service. A lot of people worried about privacy. Here's Cliff Chen explaining why he came down to Honolulu Halle.
6: Because I don't feel safe about having my signature and my name And my address all on a piece of paper that goes into the general mail. I don't know if it gets lost. So I'd much rather drop it in the box here that I know it's delivered.
0: And one couple, Debbie and Tim, shared their reasons about why they made the effort as a family to come in person.
3: I made a mistake actually on my ballot and I wanted a new ballot and and I realized I could come in person and that delighted me because I wanna be going in person. I don't want my things going through the mail. I don't want my signature on the exterior of an envelope that's going through whoever's hands might touch it.
6: My name's Tim, Debbie's husband, and same thing, just concerned about identity theft and all that with your signature, potentially address and all that being on the outside and all, and just making sure that our uh, information is protected. No, it's what we have to do with, uh, with the current crisis and, you know, social distancing and all the other things we have to do. It makes sense.
3: I
1: don't so, like it. I don't right. like it, but
6: <laughs> it's kind of what has to be done.
0: For a look at what's at stake this election with the change to mail-in votes, we reached out to former Honolulu Advertiser political editor Jerry Burris for his thoughts. He worries that there may be lots of confusion this time around.
7: In most of the races, the big races, at any rate, the battle seems to be for a place, second place on the ballot. In other words, there's going to be a runoff for prosecutor in Honolulu, and there's going to be a runoff for mayor in Honolulu. And the question is, who's going to be that second place? Seems like, uh, if you believe the polls, for prosecutor and for mayor, there's pretty much clear front runner with uh, Rich Banjardi and with Yvonne for prosecutor. So the question is, who's going to be number two there on the ballot for the runoff? In the general. So the between now, between the primary and the general is when the real heavy duty campaigning begins.
0: And then because of COVID, folks are having to rethink their strategies on door to door.
7: Completely. It's all now. It's becoming more and more. This is this is in a way this is terrible. They become more and more about name recognition and less and less about what you really know about the candidate. If you think about it, last time, what it was about, about 35% of the eligible voters voted, but they sent ballots to every eligible voter, 700,000 ballots statewide. So a lot of people are kind of going to be voting, if they do, by mail for the first time. The people who voted in the past had to make the effort to go to the polling place and vote. So you assume they had a certain amount of interest in the election, and maybe they knew something about the candidates. This time, it comes in the mail, you're not paying any attention, but what the heck, you open it and you mark it. So there's going to be a lot more marking just, but well, I've heard of this guy, I think I'll vote for him, you know, without any real depth of knowledge about who the candidates are or what they stand for.
0: I know when I opened up my ballot, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know a lot of these candidates. And I had to do the research to yeah. figure out what do they stand for.
7: But, you know, does everyone do the research? That's the question. In the past, like we used to make a joke about Board of Education and even OHA, where there are so many candidates and so little mm-hmm. general information out there that people voted for whoever's name was at the top of the list. So if your name started with an A or a B, you had a good shot at getting elected, and it proved to be the case. I don't know if that's going to be the case this time, but uh, alphabetical placement will have certain amount of effect, and just general name recognition will have a tremendous effect.
0: And I know on the neighbor islands, on the Big Island in particular, everybody was wondering if Mayor Harry Kim was going to run for re-election, and of course
7: he is. There's quite a few people running for mayor, and a number of yeah, fairly qualified people, but... Harry Kim just has such name recognition and such, I mean, when he is addressed, he's addressed as mayor. If you ask someone on, on the Big Island what word they associate with the word mayor, they associate the word Kim. Can you imagine what a benefit that is in an election? Who are you going to vote for mayor? Well, it's Kim, obviously. That's the mayor. He's always been the mayor.
0: So it's going to be a real uphill battle for some of those candidates yeah, who weren't even expecting
7: it, him. It was, I remember, I forget what race it was, but uh, one of his previous elections and a doctor from uh, Hilo Medical, I mean, Hilo Hospital was running against him and he lost even though he ran a really good campaign. And he said, you know, it's really hard running against a demigod. So that was kind of a clever statement, but it's true. So I would guess that it would be a tremendous upset if someone beat Harry Kim on the big island.
0: And then what's your sense as far as, let's say, the city council races? Because you've got a number of folks that are not running again because they can't. Right. And you've got lots of new people, but then you do have some veteran lawmakers that are trying to make a transition from the big (laughs) house to Honolulu Hale.
7: That's right. It's like... What they when they see an opening. Oh, it's a four-year term instead of a one two-year term. I'm jumping, so they're using their name recognition as a, as a state lawmaker to get the edge in running for city council. There's also some legacy people running. You know, people who are aides or relatives of of existing sitting council members who can't run again. So their aides or someone close to them is running. So that, I think and that's so they have an the edge up too because they're sort of a little w- better well known.
0: And you will have a situation where, you know, you might have a, a mayor who is new to politics, and, and the same for city council members.
7: Who will have to decide what their relationship is. You know, it's not that good with the current mayor. And will they, will, well, there'll be four old-timers in there and five newcomers. And the five newcomers will align probably for the most part like how their predecessors were, assuming that, they, you know, they, the legacy ones anyway. And so then will they, you know, what will the relationship be with the new mayor? That'll be an interesting thing to watch.
0: And we have seen in the past where Congressman Patsy Mink came back from Washington and took on a position as a council member. We saw Congressman uh, Neil Neil Abercrombie Abercrombie And and they bring a different perspective to that table.
7: They do completely. They you know, they talk about federal federal issues and federal money and and I guess that's a good thing. I mean, to be wise about how to get federal money or break through the federal bureaucracy is important. So they do bring a perspective, but so but also someone who's just been around city council a long time has a certain perspective, you know, even though they haven't been a sitting council member.
0: Oh yes, I've been through many uh, a hearing and you have the perennials, but uh, they do know their way around Honolulu how they.
7: Yep, and the staff members, They're staff members who are quietly sitting back there learning and gathering all the information and knowing where all the bodies are buried and everything and and so they have a little bit of an edge as well.
0: All right. So we'll have to see how the voters take to the mail-in ballots.
7: I'm hopeful, yet I'm concerned. I mean, there's always seems to be some glitch or something every election. Not a serious one, but some kind of a glitch. And so what is going to be the glitch this time with the counting of the ballots? I'm focused on the issue of the signatures, but I don't know if that's really a big problem or not.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess my my biggest fear right now is for the postal system, I guess, making sure those ballots get yeah. where they need to.
7: What if there's thousands of ballots sitting in, in you know, in mail sacks somewhere waiting to be delivered? Because if they don't get in there by Saturday, they're not counted, Yeah. no matter when they were mailed.
0: That's going to be the heartbreak.
7: And That will be, oh, I mailed my ballot, and there will be that too. People will say... You know, they they get somehow figure out that their ballot wasn't counted. They say, well, I I mailed it two weeks ago. What's going on?
0: And then some of the races where every vote does count, like we saw with the race between Tommy Waters and Trevor Ozawa.
7: Exactly. People think that, well, one voter doesn't count really. I mean, these these elections are decided by hundreds or thousands of votes. But there are there. Tommy Waters and and Trevor was very close. Romy Cachola has had two elections where a virtual tie with his opponent. And he'll probably have a third one this time. You know, they've got a close race out there this time in Kalihi. So very small numbers of votes can count, especially in the smaller races, the, you know, the district races.
0: Right. So uh, Don't you, kid yourself. So if you have your ballot in hand and you want to make sure it counts, you might want to drive down to your county office and put right. it in the box. Or one of the,
7: one of the ballot drop places that are around the state. Yeah. You know, don't think you have to fight traffic to City Hall. There are, you know, five places easy to look up on, online or just call the elections office and they'll tell you the closest one to you, you know, wherever you live. So yeah. there's really no reason not to vote if you haven't already.
0: Right. So just make sure that vote counts and uh, and it, it gets there uh, in time. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jerry Burris.
7: All right. And well, well, you're welcome.
0: We'll check back uh, after the primary. Okay. <laughs>
7: <laughs> when, when all of our predictions will f- turn out to be false. There you go. <laughs> I've never got one right yet, so why, why should I start now?
0: Yes, you've got to have a sense of humor during these unusual times. We were talking to Jerry Burris, former political editor for the Honolulu Advertiser. Like all machines, HPR's network of transmitters, translators, and boosters require regular maintenance. Tomorrow, August 6th, we'll be doing scheduled work on our generator and electrical system at our Haleakala transmitter site. This will require a signal outage from approximately 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. for Maui County and Hawaii Island. During this time, you can stream us on the web, the HPR app, or on your smart speaker. We appreciate your understanding and patience. Earlier in the show, we asked you if you knew how much the Hawaiian government purchased Nanini Point from the Lehui Plantation Company. Well, in 1897, the Hawaiian government leased Nanini Point and built a small wooden lighthouse uh, using an oil lamp and a reflector as its light source. In 1906, the oil lamp was replaced with a lens lantern atop a 33-foot tall mast. And then in 1917, the government purchased the 3.2-acre lighthouse designated land on Nanini Point for a whopping $8 from the Lehui Plantation Company and that is according to the United States Coast Guard Historian's Office. Uh, after spending so little to purchase the land a new 88-foot high-powered long-range lighthouse was completed in 1932 for 6,000 times the cost of the land or $48,100 and congratulations Dean from Palolo you got that answer right. If you have something to share about our backyard, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We've got more election analysis for you. Now, during previous election years, it's likely you'd see political candidates at community events shaking hands and trying to garner votes one personal touch at a time. COVID changed all that this year with social distancing rules in place. Those vying for office have had to rethink their strategy in communications. So how are candidates campaigning this year? Uh, Colin Moore is the director of the Public Policy Center at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai on political campaigning during COVID.
6: This is an incredibly challenging environment to campaign. It's particularly challenging for Uh, New candidates, candidates that don't have a lot of name recognition, because they also don't tend to have a lot of campaign funds. So they usually rely on their ability to rally friends and supporters to go door-to-door, which is something you can still do pretty effectively here in Hawaii, at least traditionally, because we're such a small state and the districts are small. But now, even if you can do a little bit of sort of knock-and-wave, leave-the-flyer campaigning, um, you can't do it like you could before. And so this has been a real challenge for candidates who are trying to challenge incumbents and have fewer resources. If you have a lot of resources, like the mayoral candidates, for example, um, you can still produce television advertisement. A lot of them have had a big presence on social media, um, but for candidates running, in, for example, for house seats, um, they don't have a lot of money. You, you really don't have the funds to do that, and so you're sort of cut out of uh, what used to be your, your signal advantage, which is door-to-door and door-to-door discussions and conversations and kind of classic stew and rice dinners you can't you can't really do much of that right now
2: so I've heard from some people that you can go to -to door-to-door and I think for me and maybe some other folks it might be a little hesitant but what have you heard from candidates is that something that people are open to during this time
6: I don't think so I think there's been a little bit of that but compared to what you'd see in a normal campaign season you, you you don't see candidates I mean usually you'll see them walking walking their district and maybe maybe for a small number of them but i think compared to what a normal campaign season would have it's been very very limited and really just people leaving flyers because the last thing you want to do as a candidate is make a potential voter uncomfortable and i think knocking on someone's door and trying to have a conversation even if you're wearing a mask is uh is pretty hard to do even even traditional tactics like sign waving i mean compared to a normal season we see very limited sign waving and of course You know to respect social distancing the candidates are usually out there by themselves or with just a handful of supporters so i don't think there's been much of that at all at least compared to a normal year Um, and i think candidates have to balance trying to connect with voters with a fear that they're going to scare or offend some voters by looking like they're not respecting social distancing or they're getting too close so um, much much less of that than you'd see in a normal year
2: what about social media What platforms have candidates used, and do you think it's been effective for them?
6: Sure. Social media is very effective now. Um, I mean, Facebook is the biggest platform, Um, and if you have money, you can put Facebook ads up, which are very effective. And the mayoral candidates um, have done a fair bit of that. Um, But again, you have to have the resources to, to pay for those ads. And, you know, I think candidates with less funds can, can still do that with, um, you know, through Facebook groups and things like that. I mean, it helps to rally people who already support you. But, you know, it, it, it's sort of limited if you can't pay for ads, because in, in some ways you're, you end up just speaking to, to your own supporters. I, I think it's really the best tool they have right now. You know, it, it's always a good tool, you know, certainly in the last decade or so, when a, a huge number of potential voters have been on social media. And so that's that's really been their primary tool. I mean, I think this has been a campaign that's been largely conducted over social media. I mean, the other thing that's happened too is that because the COVID crisis has sort of sucked up all the oxygen out of the room, there's been relatively little media coverage of this race, I mean, particularly local races. The national presidential race has gotten a fair bit of coverage. But, you know, even relatively important house races um have gotten very little coverage just because it's such a there's so many other stories competing for people's attention
2: yeah it's hard to have the forums when there's limited media space and well and maybe some other groups that would have these type of events in person are no longer happening
6: that's exactly right i mean that's the other thing where smaller candidates can get their their name out all sorts of various organizations, social organizations will have candidate forums. And very little of that has happened And what has has been on zoom, which can work, but is a far cry from the ability to to meet people in person.
2: The other thing I've seen the text message, the automated ones, maybe even personal ones, but those are also, you need funds to buy call lists as well, right?
6: Absolutely. I mean, those automated calls, the, the automated text message; those are all sold by companies who provide that, and so you need you need money for that. And with the exception of the you know, the candidates running for major offices like like mayor and maybe a few of the city council candidates, um, most most don't have those resources. So that's another contactless campaign tool that that you really don't have access to.
2: I mean, are there any innovative ways that you've seen? Candidates who get their name out there That maybe hasn't been tried in Previous elections
6: you know, it's, it's an odd time to campaign in the middle Of a crisis like this because You want to get your name out there But you don't want it to really be about you You want to show that you have empathy And that people are suffering and that they have Bigger things on their mind Than, than your uh, campaign So I mean I, I've seen a lot of candidates Sort of transform What would have been, normally been campaign events To sort of Public assistance events. I mean, to to do things like help hand out food at food banks, or to assist with, you know, in some ways with, um, you know, various COVID relief efforts, and then they highlight that usually on social media. I mean, that's the most effective strategy I think that I've seen that you wouldn't have necessarily seen in the past, where they still are trying to connect with constituents, but show that you know, they recognize that COVID relief is more important than their campaign, but it also gives them a chance to meet people, highlight their good work. So you've seen a fair bit of that.
2: Normally during a campaign, the candidates would talk about their policy stances. Well, right now they're really talking about COVID and this is kind of the big elephant in the room and, you know, certainly a worthwhile big topic. But, you know, once we're past this, will people even know what the candidate stands for, you know, on climate change or other important policy issues?
6: Yeah, I'll, you're right about that. All these other normally important policy issues have, have sort of been crowded out and it's all about COVID or what will become of our economy as a result of COVID and how we recover from that um, and people's, you know, very serious job situations. You know, I... I I'm not so worried about that actually, because most voters don't actually choose candidates based on specific policy positions. Most people choose candidates based on who they feel they can trust, who you know would be good in a crisis, who you know they connect to at a personal level. I mean, politics is very much about emotion more than it is kind of cold decisions and, and evaluating policy statements. And so, actually, I think that, that voters get a, a chance to see in real time how candidates and current office holders respond to a crisis. And, you know, and, and if they feel like they have effective communication strategies and if they agree with the decisions they're making on um, matters that you know, affect them more directly than, than most sort of abstract policy positions. So I don't I don't really worry so much that, that people are going to elect someone and, and not know anything about them. I mean, I think that the other policy issues that might have gotten more attention, those are obviously important. But I think that Voters still get a pretty good sense of most of the candidates and kind of evaluating their response to this real crisis. The unfortunate thing for politics is that this crisis, because it's been difficult to get campaign door to door, I think really means that younger candidates, candidates who are challenging incumbents, have had a much harder go of it um, because they tend to rely on those traditional shoe leather, knocking on door strategies, and they just can't do that this time.
0: That was Colin Moore of UH Manoa's Public Policy Center, talking about the challenges facing political candidates, especially newcomers, as they campaign during the COVID-19 pandemic. It occurred to me that this is a service that I consume regularly and a lot, and I'm
3: doing it for free, and it's wonderful that so many people can, and I should help. I can contribute something to help all the hardworking people who make it happen, and I'm proud to do so. Hi, my name is
0: Leela Goldstein. I live in Manoa Valley, and I am a proud, sustaining member of Hawaii Public Radio. Well, we do have to go, but up tomorrow, we talk going back to school. It's a call-in show with the school board chair, the head of the Teachers Union, and Dr. Sarah Park of the state health department. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.